Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Song Stories is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Song Stories, a new iHeartRadio podcast where we try to figure out how do you make a hit? To answer this not-so-simple question, we're sitting down with some of the biggest names in music. They're going to take us through the life cycle of a song, from studio to stage and everything in between. Along the way, we'll learn all about the heart, soul, and skills that go into your favorite tracks. Hopefully, you'll learn to appreciate these songs in a whole new way. And hey, maybe they'll even inspire your own creative pursuits. For our inaugural season, we're going to talk with someone who helped define the sound of popular music in recent years. It all began with a song called Ocean Eyes. Though he'd originally written it for his own band, he decided to give it to his teenage sister to sing. You may know her as Billie Eilish. The song went viral practically overnight, paving the way for their first full length, When We Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? The album became one of the most important records of the decade, and one of the most beloved. Since then, he's experienced success on pretty much every metric you can imagine, and probably a few you can't. Along with Billy, he's played sold-out arenas across the globe and high-profile performances at the Academy Awards, Saturday Night Live, and the Democratic National Convention. He's also written and produced radio smashes for the likes of Justin Bieber, Camila Cabello, Selena Gomez, Halsey, and Kid Cudi, not to mention a bomb theme that earned him an Oscar. He's netted nine Grammys, and this year was up for a Best New Artist nomination. The distinction is amusing considering the lengthy resume assembled by the hardworking musician, all by the age of 24, I might add. But now he's embarking on a new phase of his career. After years as what the New York Times has called Pop's secret weapon, he recently stepped into the spotlight as a solo artist. Last fall, he released his debut LP, Optimist, an album shaped in large part by the events of 2020, a year unlike any other. With Optimist, he's truly come into his own as the full package, writer, producer, and performer. And now he's back with a new single, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, a rock and rhapsodic reminiscence of his romantic partnership with YouTuber Claudia Saluski. His name is Phineas Baird O'Connell, but you can just call him Phineas. 
Now, I'm a major music fan, but writing songs and making records is way outside of my area of expertise. It's total sorcery to me. If you told me magic spells were involved, I'd probably believe you. So during our talk with Phineas, I'll be joined by my friend, colleague, and executive producer, Noel Brown, who's a talented musician, songwriter, and producer in his own right. He'll be able to bring a new perspective and fresh insights to our conversation. I hope you enjoy. Taking it way back, where did this begin for you? When did Was there a moment when you knew that this was going from a, a private passion to something that you knew would be the driving force in, you know, in your life? Well, from the time I was like 12 years old, it's it's what I've always wanted to do. And 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 by it, I just mean, you know, uh make music for a living. That was sort of the the sort of broad um, you know, career path I wanted to go into. I don't think I could have told you at 12 really like what the exact role of like a producer or a songwriter or a, you know, engineer or a touring musician was. I just was like seeing Green Day concerts and thinking like that. Something in that world looks like a blast. Um, I started writing songs at that age. And I don't know, like I've, I've talked to some friends who, who relate to this sort of uh, struggle, which is that I think... There's sort of, there's like kids with no idea what they want to do yet, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15. Sometimes they're, you know, they're, they're midway through college, you know, with a major, they're not sure what they want to do. And then there's kids who like have passions and interests and are kind of enjoying what they want to do. And then there's sort of like, I'm in the third category, which a lot of people are too, which is like knew exactly what I wanted to do. Wasn't ever sure if like I'd get the chance to do it, but, but had a, you know, always had sort of a bucket list fantasy, you know, this is what I'd like to do with my life. Um, and I spent most of my teens like pretty sort of like anxious that I wouldn't ever get to um, because I just, I felt like I was always aware that it, it seemed like there was a lot of luck involved. And um, so, you know, so in terms of when it became sort of a viable career path was like the, the moment that Ocean Eyes started to um, get picked up by blogs and you know our, our our now manager Danny was you know taking meetings with us and stuff that was when I was like oh my god maybe I'll maybe I'll get to have kind of a career um, which was so thrilling um, and that was in 2015 end of 2015 and it seems like I mean you have such a tight-knit family unit and you and your sister seem so incredibly close and obviously developed sort of in tandem, but I mean, you're older. So, I mean, she was obviously looking to you in certain ways. How did that relationship and that kind of closeness sort of inform one another, you know, in your kind of little symbiosis of, uh, of music creation? I mean, we've always been very close as people. Um, when we started working together, Billy was 13 and I was turning 18. And, uh, and that was sort of like age gaps get bigger and smaller depending on the age, right? So like four years from four to eight, huge. From eight to 12, huge. From 13 to 18, fairly big. But at, a, at 13, you're, you're, you know, starting to have sort of more discipline and ambition than maybe you are when you're like 11. So, you know, to me, it was never about forcing her into anything. That was kind of the age where she was like getting interested in music. And I was sort of like trying to learn as much as I could about recording music and, you know, sort of invited her to, to learn with me, you know, do, do you want to record some stuff, try it out? I'm, I'm, I'm figuring it out as I go. I'm, you know, I'm by no means a professional yet. So it's like, you know, this kind of fun collaborative thing that we started to do. Um, 
but we always liked each other a lot and we always you know got along as much as siblings do you know we bicker and we argue and stuff but only in that like i don't know who gets the front seat in the car when you're kids <laughs> and stuff like I, you know just meaningless little arguments so i always just loved hanging out with her and um that was that was sort of the genesis of of working together it was just like oh she's 13 she's interested now she's old enough to take it seriously and uh you know she I, she was very talented too that was sort of the other caveat was she was just incredibly talented the the loose premise of this show was talking was to hit on the different sort of stages in the life cycle of a song writing right. recording and engineering you know and and then but talking to you I was curious i i imagine probably a lot of those stages in the cycle kind of blend. How much of writing for you is sitting down acoustically and you know getting chord structures together yeah. versus building it up brick by brick and sort of building a soundscape and going from there? Or is it a mix of both? Mix of both. The first several years of my songwriting experience were only that, sort of like sitting at a piano, sitting at a guitar, writing lyrics and melody. Uh, and that was just because I didn't know how to produce music. Um, and then I would also write, I'd write stuff and then bring it to, I was in a band in high school. And so that would help me kind of write more rhythmic stuff, right? It's, it's easier to write rhythmic lyric melody over, you know, drums and stuff like that inspires you differently. Um, now that I spend so much time producing, it's, it's, I don't want to say 50, 50, cause it's, it's not exact always, but it's like, it's, it's bouncing back and forth. It's let me write a song at the piano. Let me go write a song over a cool drum beat. And, and they all inspire different sort of writing styles. They all inspire different lyrics, different melody. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I, I, I still believe that there's a sort of a, you know, one of the dangers of writing and producing simultaneously is, depending on what kind of producer you are, I'm, I'm this way, like like the sounds have to be great, you know? So I may be working on a kind of a mediocre lyric and melody and I might be really distracted by the kick drum not being perfect and I spend two hours making the kick drum the perfect kick drum and, and then I have kind of a stupid lyric and stupid melodies. And so it's like, you know, there's something to be said for like writing a song at a piano with, with no distraction from melody and lyrics and writing something amazing and then translating it and and spending as much time as you need to getting the sonics right so it's like you know that's sort of what i would recommend to kids starting out i guess but you know there's merit to all of it i feel like lately i've been craving um and and writing accordingly like craving sort of like acoustic material even if the end result is very electronic and you'd never know i wrote it on a piano i've been craving r sitting at a piano writing chords, lyrics, melody before I open the computer um, so that I just have to focus on lyrics and melody. Sometimes you just get such a banging drum pattern, you, you're just like, any anything I write over this is going to be fire. And it's like, it's not really <laughs> true. You, know, you still write something really lame over a really cool beat. How do you balance musical and artistic growth without alienating your fans. You kind of mentioned <laughs> friends of yours who do their hit. I mean, this is these are yeah. my words. They kind of do their hit over and over again, and you so clearly don't do that. How do you navigate that, what I imagine is a very difficult needle to thread by, you know, innovating and growing while, without completely leaving behind the people who loved your last work? I'm always going to be in the business of giving people what they want. That's, to me, 
That's exciting. I think when Billy and I make albums, we don't think about making hits, but we think about the show a lot. We think about, ooh, the audience will love to sing that line, or ooh, this will be a great closer or a great opener. I feel the same way about my own music. And here's the real, here's the real truth. People's taste changes. And so I think that's kind of like the most liberating thing is if we made one of our popular songs again, if I made Let's Fall in Love for the Night again today, the person who's loved that song since the day it came out, like they're craving something new. You know what I mean? And so the best thing you can do is not repeat yourself. You know, I think... I think you have to kind of live within the context of what feels authentic to you. Like the best example I could give is like if I put out a rap album tomorrow, like people would be like, I don't believe you. And I wouldn't believe myself. You know what I mean? Like if I if I was trying to be someone I'm not, I think that's where people would be like, What is what's going on now? You know what I mean? It's like as long as you're being authentic to yourself and your identity, I think you can be pretty experimental and pretty adventurous. It's just that kind of like why is he suddenly making a jazz album? Like, that's so inauthentic to him, you know? Like, and then there's examples where it's, like, authentic to people. Like, like a really good example of an artist who's, who's switched genres successfully is, like, Childish Gambino went from sort of, like, internet rap kid to sort of, like, like, he did some kind of transitional work on, on his, um, what's it called, Kawhi? that EP with like Jaden Smith and stuff. That was really cool, kind of transitional, had some R&B, and then he made Awaken My Love, and it was like full-blown like funk R&B, but it was clearly his identity had had been formed over the course of this eight years. And so it, it was like, yeah, actually it would be inauthentic for him to make another internet rap album at this point in his life because he has changed as a person, you know? And, uh, and I think that, was really informative to me. Like you can change as a person, but you can't like you can't just sort of do it on a whim without really walking the walk of like I I am I have I have a different identity now. And I feel like sometimes I see I feel like it's really easy to relate to and empathize with like an artist who has a sound will hear a song, you know, and love it, right? By another artist. And they'll they'll try to steal some of that juice. And it's always like, well, you can you can you can be inspired and influenced by something and still really have it become your own and still really sort of like wear it. You can see really cool clothing at a store and go into the changing room and put it on and be like, oh, this doesn't look good on me. It's really cool. Can't wait to see somebody else on the street in this, but like I I can't rock this. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not there yet. Um so I think that to me is like you know, knowing who you are, knowing what feels authentic about you. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome back to Song Stories. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog, and we're in the midst of talking to Phineas. Now, his career ascent has become something of a modern music fable. It's a success story that reflects the times and tastes almost as much as his sounds do. In the beginning, he and his sister Billy were just two teenagers making music in the bedroom of their childhood home in Los Angeles. The track Ocean Eyes was famously recorded as an assignment for a dance class Billy was enrolled in. They uploaded the song to SoundCloud to share it with their teacher, and their whole life changed. A convergence of talent, luck, and algorithms made Ocean Eyes a grassroots indie hit practically overnight. Now, they're far from the first to make a popular song at home with a laptop, but the scale of the success, mixed with the personal nature of the recording, made it unique. In an era when sharing art on the internet can feel like screaming into the abyss, Billy and Phineas broke through seemingly without compromise or help, simply on the merit of their music. As media consumption habits continue to evolve, their story has given an untold number of basement beatmakers something to aspire to. From the start, Phineas's work has been inextricably linked with the internet. 
It's both a delivery mechanism and his muse, allowing him to simultaneously share his music while also explore the history of recorded sound that's now available to anyone with a Wi-Fi connection. Like most of us, he has a love-hate relationship with the internet. Unlike most of us, his highs are much higher. Grammys, bomb themes, sold-out stadiums, I could go on, but the lows are much lower, too. Hit records kind of make you something of a troll magnet, after all. He addresses this dichotomy on his debut solo album, Optimist, notably on the track The 90s, which finds him pining for a pre-digital age. He expanded on this in conversation with me and my colleague, Noel Brown. I hope you enjoy I put out that song in the 90s, and um, it got kind of like like some 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 mean people on online were like sort of like trying to be hyper pop and i had this feeling of like no but you know that's fine like i don't know i was like this i just was making it how like i had this sort of feeling of like wow if i'd i'm like i had this feeling of like yeah i guess if i was trying to do that i failed but but i wasn't i was trying mm-hmm. to just make this thing and 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 you know and make what i was hearing in my head um, which is like, I don't know, it would be a little bit like, be a little bit like taking some amazing hyper pop song and being like, wow, this is, this doesn't sound like hip hop at all. Like this sucks. And it's like, no, it's exactly. like, it's doing its own <laughs> thing. So I don't know. Point. I'm a no, I'm, I'm continually and forever annoyed by the comparative nature of the internet of like, this, yes. this is like, this is like this. It's like, it's one thing if it's about songwriting and it's like ripping off a melody, but like the sort of approach to something like I, I actually made this joke in the Billy's documentary that gets quoted to me a lot that's like people who don't make music always say songs sound like other songs and it's like I don't know it's really true and the internet is like king of that where I was oh, like yeah. I don't know it's it's just all there's this sort of like need for like this sounds like this like the internet loves to say that about everything sure and uh I just think it's very like why are we why do we compare why do we compare everything why do we rank everything and compare everything it's all different and um and it's and it can all be appreciated I don't know like I don't think uh I think I think it's very clear when something's a ripoff and I feel like if it's if it's not ripoff like territory like don't worry about it you know what I mean like we can all suss out like you can all see like a kid who's dressing like Billie Eilish suddenly and be like, oh yeah, they're dressing like Billie. But it's like to take someone else who's like also a young girl who's writing songs, you know, about similar themes and like have that be the only context that's similar and like just pit the two against each other is like very stupid. Like the world's very big. We don't really do that. We don't really do that with other art. Like we don't take an amazing abstract artist and compare it to another abstract artist. It's just kind of a music thing. We don't take actors. We don't take a generic white male movie star and be like, oh, same guy as this guy. Like, it's we don't do it. So it's kind of a music thing. You, you do sometimes, you're like, oh, that's a poor man's McConaughey, you know, or something like that. Like, that's the dismissive version of that, I think. But, but that's what like, I'm saying. That's the copycat yeah. thing. That's like, yes. that guy's yes. not, it doesn't have an original vibe. Yeah. But, but yeah, you know what I mean. 
I'm I'm a fan of like sussing out influences, and I think that can be a yeah. fun conversation. But when Influence you start going cool, to, yeah. when you go too far, it can be just like self defeating. It's like sort of like oh, shutting yeah. people down, shutting down creativity, and that's that's no good. Yeah, no or you know what, like gate like gatekeepers who are like yes. you can't listen to this, you can't listen to this album without listening to who this artist was loving when they were young, and you like listen to their favorite album from when they were kids, and you're like, oh, I don't like this at all, man. Like I don't know that like that stuff. That stuff is tedious to me. I agree. I agree. You obviously achieved huge success <laughs> relatively quickly, and it's just kind of gone so meteoric from there. Like, how do you yeah. how do you not get numbed and like you know jaded to those experiences <laughs> and continue to grow and continue to find things about yourself and not you know drink the, the your own Kool Aid and you know and kind of like lose sight of yourself? I know that's a big question, but I just, it's, it's something I think about a lot. Yeah, I think one of my coping mechanisms, whether it's good or not, has been this kind of like, you don't get to decide how long this lasts. A lot of these are are once-in-a-lifetime moments. Twice in a lifetime, if you're unbelievably lucky, probably once in a lifetime. And so one of the sort of defense mechanisms I've had is kind of this like, you can't define yourself by these things because we've all seen like celebrities who like who do define themselves by those things and five years in there they're panicking and spiraling because they're not number one on a chart you know what I mean it's like these things really need to be looked at as these like you achieve them once and 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 be grateful that you ever achieved they're not they're not to be maintained you know what I mean like nobody gets to be president for 40 years it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a there's there's term limits to this kind of shit and so you know, I think sometimes in an effort to not define myself by that, I've like not let myself sort of like bask in it as much, but I don't know. It's, it's tricky. That's, that's a thing I'm, I'm deeply afraid of my self-worth and my self-concept relying on some sort of like external metric of achievement and stuff. I'd, I'd really like that not to be the case. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to not wake up one day and feel like a failure because of something I'm not in control of at all. You know what I mean? Like to me, the most healthy thing I can place self-worth in is my personal relationships with my family and friends and my and my work itself, like writing a song, feeling proud of that, my work ethic. You know, like sales metrics, chart statistics, like that stuff is pretty inconsequential and certainly not within my control. So it's like, you know, the same time I'm I'm winning a Grammy, I'm sort of like trying to trying to be like, all right, this isn't this isn't the usual now. You don't you don't just do this every year, you know. Like this this could be the only year ever, you know. And uh you know, human beings are are habitual. Like we we eat a good meal and we want to eat it again. So it's like it's a little bit of of fighting against that subconscious nature of like Hey, when when they told me I was the number one producer in the world, that felt pretty good. I'd love to feel that way all the time, you know? And it's like, it's your responsibility to go like, it shouldn't feel bad when you're not just because you were, you know? I think it's similar to the way you reconcile the idea of relationships and knowing that it's sort of an irrational thing to think I have to be the only thing to you forever and all time. And sure, that's nice and it hopefully will last, but also there's a certain acceptance and peace that I think comes from maybe not 
hanging your entire identity on that concept. Um, I think it's similar. Honestly. You, yeah. 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 And and it's, you know, you know, I think, I think the number one thing, and I think this is fair is like, I love my career. I don't want my career to go away. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want to not be able to make albums and go on tour anymore. Like I'd like to do that forever. Um, I just don't think it's healthy to be like, placing your worth in accolades and right. and sort of metrics. It's like, you know, the ongoing sort of working hard and and doing what you love. Like that's pretty cool. Um and I I don't want to confuse it for that. I don't want to I don't want people to think like he doesn't really care about his career. It's like I care so much about my career. I just don't think caring about your career is synonymous with caring about trophies. Like I think that's not up to you as much. And the trope, like the, like you win if people sell out your show, man. That's like the, that is the shit. Like that is so dope. So that feels like winning to me. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. 
In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hello, and welcome back to Song Stories. I'm your host, Jordan Runtalk. Now, until recently, Phineas was perhaps best known as the guy behind the scenes, or more appropriately, the guy behind the mixing desk. He shared the stage with his sister Billie Eilish, strumming a guitar or playing a keyboard, but literally and figuratively, he mostly stayed out of the spotlight. Yet that changed with the release of Optimist, his first full-length solo album. It's an interesting position for an artist to find himself. While this is indeed his debut, he's already won Grammys, played stadiums, written Bond themes, and done pretty much all the things that are bucket list items for any artist. On one hand, this has a liberating effect. With all his dreams satiated, he's free to follow his muse. But separating himself from his illustrious prior work and defining himself as a solo force in his own right is a complicated and delicate process. What's it like for one of Pop's most collaborative artists to go it alone? Writing, producing, and in many cases, playing all the instruments himself. He had a lot to say about this in conversation with me and my colleague, Noel Brown. I hope you enjoy. What is Optimus to you? I mean, it's obviously, I don't want to, I mean, inherently, you know, it's, you're going to be playing smaller rooms. Like it's more of like an indie kind of feel to it. And it's obviously very, very you and very personal. Was that an escape in some way from the big, you know, stadium world? Like just to kind of do something very intimate and very you that maybe you didn't have to feel like you had to fill those, like tick the same boxes as, you know, your other life? Well, Billy and I achieved super mainstream success by accident and i'm very grateful for the fact that it was an accident like i feel like there's a school of writer producers who are making like quote unquote hits and we were just making what we wanted to do and they happened to get really popular and so what that did for me which was liberating was when i was making this album i just had this feeling of like I'm just going to make what I want and it'll get as popular as it gets and the people that like it will like it and they'll show up to the show. And uh, and so then I didn't have to define it by any sort of form of like, oh, it didn't sell this many copies or it did sell, you know, whatever, because cause to me it was just like, these are the songs I wanted to make. And I'm so glad I did that because I just finished this tour. I did a four-week, 18-show U.S. tour and... Uh, you know, to be honest, I was playing I was playing bigger rooms than I ever thought I'd play as a solo artist, which, you know, are, are clubs and theaters. I was playing Wiltern in LA mm, and Irving Plaza in New York and 930 Club. Um, having a blast. I was having such a good time. And, uh, you know, what's cool is like seeing the song's impact on people in real life, right? Like not seeing the YouTube, Spotify streams of which one's most popular, seeing which one is you know, a, a person's actual favorite in the room. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just, it was super awesome. I, I, it's, it's been the coolest thing about being involved in Billy's touring career and also having my own touring career as sort of like getting to retrace steps. You know what I mean? Like we did the, a lot of the rooms I just did on this tour, we did in 2018, me and Billy. And it like I loved I loved these rooms, so it was like it was so fun to get to come back and do them again, and uh, you know it's there's an intimacy and a sort of an immediacy that you don't you don't get in an arena. And the trade off is when you're in an arena, you get to put on this 
unbelievable show and, you know, give people this kind of like incredible experience that's sort of like budgeted out for the space of an arena. And, you know, they, they both have uh, pros and cons. So yeah, it's just a, it's a really lucky experience. And, and I think this tour just made me want to make another album like that, that I think, I feel like playing live shows is, has always been a source of inspiration to me because you see what what really is reacted to and what people love about what you do. This might be kind of a corny question, but what is the best thing that someone can say to you about your music to make it think, you know what, something like How It Ends and Love Is Pain, that, that song took me to a really dark, scary place and it really, it was really a lot of pain went into it but you know what it's totally worth it because someone said that does that exist yeah. or does that kind of validation not really exist externally well um i don't think that validation exists externally if you don't like your shit maybe like that's i have friends who don't really like the stuff they make for whatever reason and that's pretty common like it's pretty common that really? artists make make uh, yeah I, I don't know if that's insecurity or nervousness but like Artists will like, especially their hit. They'll sort of shit on their their hit, um, and and you know it is what it is. I, I feel so grateful to have people show up to things because of songs I've made. That I, I the idea of ever complaining about something I've done that's popular is alien to me. But you know, I think the it's all pretty great and meaningful. What I think I resonate with the most because it's it's the most similar to my life experience is like. I was on a hike the other day and a dude passed me in the other direction on the hike and was like, are you Phineas? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, bro, he was like, that song I lost a friend has gotten me through so much. And I think like saying something like that because there are so many songs that have occupied that space for me, that's the thing I can relate to the most. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there are songs like The Best of You by Foo Fighters that like over the course of my adolescence, like... If I was going through something, I'd listen to that song a billion times. Or like there's a song called Saw You in a Dream by Beach House. Like these songs that when you're when you're in your most emotional state, you you put the song on for weeks on end. It's like when kids tell me that something I've made has done that for them, that's that's sort of the most like, oh, I get it. I get exactly what that is doing to you. Um, but all of it's an honor. Covers are an honor, you know, when kids, you know, when something makes them want to make music, whatever, it's all. It's all very dope. I think that's just the thing that I have the most experience with. It's like, oh yeah, me too. I listen to songs when I feel heartbroken. Song Stories is a production of iHeartRadio. The show was hosted and executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog with supervising producer Mike Johns. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more from iHeartRadio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Wow. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.